another episode of Side Hustle City, the podcast that helps you turn your side hustle into your main hustle with your hosts, Adam Kaler and Kyle Stevie. All right, guys, back again, another episode of Side Hustle City. And joining me, Mr. Kyle Stevie. Hello. Trusty co-host over there. Yeah, I'm the Ed McMahon. That's right. Well, we have another interesting real estate uh, guest on today. And I think the thing about the real estate guests, they get a lot of listens. There's something with uh, the real estate thing. I, I don't know what it is. I guess people feel like it's more accessible and they're very successful. But today we've got John Kasman on, Kasman Capital Group, right? That's right. Thank you for having me today. All right. Yeah. Thanks for being here. So, so John, uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, your background, where you're from, um, you know, what, what got you into real estate? Yeah, man. So my background is in uh, corporate America. I worked in marketing for 15 years and I uh, was a marketing executive for General Motors for a time. I was uh, at an advertising agency overseeing brands like Coors Light, Nike, Mountain Dew, and brands like that doing all sorts of activations from Super Bowl activations to uh, New Year's Eve, Times Square, and uh, new, you know, new TV shows and all sorts of stuff, right? And uh, for me, what ended up happening is I kind of started to see a trajectory and a lot of the folks that I was working with, um, they went through a, a period where either they were miserable or they were kind of pushed out of their, their job. And, uh, I knew at some point that was probably going to happen to me as well. And I think particularly, um, back in around 2008, you know, when I was at GM, if you recall, that was the time where we went into bankruptcy. So, mm-hmm. Picture me walking into an office and you're reading about your company on the newspaper. You're seeing your company on TV. Literally, I'm seeing my boss's boss, right? She became the de facto spokesperson for the company. So I'd see her on the floor. We'd have a conversation. And, you know, I'd see her three hours later on CNN talking about the state of the business, right? And it was just an unsettling time. And uh, there was a day in particular where I knew they were having layoffs and I came in as late as humanly possible without, you know, <laughs> getting in trouble for it. And uh, I remember going to my desk and there was a red light blinking on my phone. And I was told before this, don't worry about it. You're good. You don't have anything to worry about, John. And I recalled the emotion, right? I mean, I was, my, my stomach just sank. My heart started pounding and I, the anxiety just built up. And I sat there and I stared at that phone for like 15 to 20 seconds. And finally, I picked up the phone, pushed the voicemail button, and it was the sound of one of my colleagues. And unfortunately, he was let go. He was what they call a lifer. So he was he had worked for the company 22 years. He needed three more years before he was kind of vested with the pension, another seven years and then or eight years, and then he could retire with everything. And uh, he was let go. And he, there was no plan B for him. He didn't have anything else set up. He had worked there so long that you know, he didn't have a resume, you know, he just really had no other options. And what I heard in that voicemail was the panic, the raw emotion of someone who did not see this coming. And I think at that moment, it dawned on me that I could not rely on a W2 job. And I think many of your listeners, you know, if you're talking about the side hustle city, this is, I mean, there's a moment that jars you and makes you realize whether it's from a passion standpoint or a financial standpoint that you really need to create something else that you control. And that's when it happened for me. And um, I looked at different things. I'm savvy, but I was by no means uh, believing that I was going to come up with the next great app. So apps back then were all the rage, right? And uh, I think Facebook had really just started to get some traction. I don't even remember if Twitter was like a household thing yet. Um, But you know, there's apps. I, I certainly didn't think I was going to invent the next great app. Um, I was working at a car manufacturer. It wasn't like that easily transitioned into something else, right? It's not like I worked at Coca-Cola and uh, or Pepsi and could say, oh, okay, maybe we can do our own brand of a beverage. So I couldn't see how I could naturally transition what I was doing in the automotive industry into kind of a side hustle or another career. And ultimately, I started doing a lot of research. And I remembered uh, various books that I read, Rich Dad, Poor Dad being one, and thought about real estate more more uh, seriously. And I'd already thought about real estate, and I was very interested in real estate, because quite frankly, it doesn't take a mastermind to be successful in real estate. 
And the simplicity of it and the abundance of it made it a very practical solution. So I started to dig deep into real estate. It took a couple of years to get going because again, this is 2008 in Detroit um, where the economy was just on a rocket ship to the ground. So I didn't feel comfortable or confident investing in Detroit at that time. But a couple of years later, I ultimately invested in Chicago and that really allowed me to start growing my portfolio. Awesome. Yeah. Detroit. Yeah. Back then. I mean, goodness. I mean, things were in real bad shape. I know that there's folks out there now who are investing in Detroit. Um, Dan Gilbert, I think started buying up a uh, land around downtown Detroit. Uh, we used to go up there every February and go to the auto show and uh joe lewis arena right and go to the auto show every year and yeah downtown detroit i mean man i mean what do you do i mean when it comes to investments i know the suburbs i've actually went out to the suburbs which are awesome in detroit i mean it's there a lot of people live out there things are there's newer things and everything else but downtown detroit needs some help are you are you still thinking about potentially going back in or have you invested in detroit well, I mean, I moved since then, right? So I moved to Chicago. I was there for eight years. I've since moved to Cincinnati. I've been here for about a year and a half. And I love Detroit. And you mentioned kind of where things were at. And I think it's really important to understand what took place over the next 12, 13 years. So as you mentioned, Dan Gilbert started to invest heavily in Detroit. And you saw a lot of the local uh, enthusiasts, a lot of the people who lived and grew up in Detroit, they started to invest. Downtown today looks vastly different than the place that I worked in. And I worked at the Renaissance Center downtown Detroit. So I was next to Cobo Hall and Joe Lewis Arena and in those places that you just mentioned. And there was no place to live. There was no place to buy groceries. There was no place to shop in downtown Detroit. Today that's changed. There's a, a lot of development that's taking place on Woodward Avenue. There's a lot of uh, restaurants and bars and coffee shops, and it has an eclectic vibe of any major urban city, and, and it can it can rival any downtown of those cities. But the point you made, I think, is really important when you think about real estate. The suburbs of Detroit um, have grown and, and are thriving and doing well. And I think sometimes people hear a city and they start to go off on um, you know, just just the the image of that city. And if you are not paying attention to the development and growth of a city, you can completely miss it. You know, we're in Cincinnati, right in the Cincinnati market. And the same thing could be said for over the Rhine. You know, go back 10, 15 years. Well, what did downtown Cincinnati look like? What did over the Rhine look like? Uh, I'm born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. So same thing. Downtown Cleveland 15 years ago is not the place that it is today. And I think it goes to show that a couple of things happen and you have to pay attention to the macro economy and market trends. So there's always these macro trends. And I'm a marketer, so I'm, I'm about to go into the marketing space. Me and you, me uh, and you are in the same boat. I mean, I'm a yeah, marketer yeah. my whole career, so... There you go. So you get the, there's macro trends, mm -hmm. which are really about changes in behaviors on a broad level. And then there are the micro trends. And when you dive into, uh, you know, cities, you're now talking about sub markets and things like that. And on a macro level, we started to see people who are quite frankly, like me. I mean, I'm, a, I'm an old millennial. I'm basically like the, the cutoff of the millennial. You know, I think if I was born, uh, you know, six months earlier, I probably, I would be Gen X, right? What is but, that? Um, when I'm an old, I'm an old Gen X or I'm a young Gen X. So I'm a, uh, I'm 77, August 77. There you go. So I'm what are you like 81 so or something? I'm, I'm 80. I'm 80. December, so you're, yeah. yeah, my wife so is I'm 80. June, I'm June 80. So what does that make me? Uh, I, I, I think, I think you're technically one of the old millennials like me, Yeah, you're an but old it depends on the list. Some, some say Gen X, some say millennial, but point is this, when I lived in Detroit, I wanted to live downtown. There was no reason for me to live in the suburbs. I was single. I worked downtown. I was hanging out downtown. I mean, the few places I could hang out, they were downtown. So I wanted to live there. It was impractical. I literally was like, where do I park my car? Where do I go buy groceries? It was completely impractical for me. And what happened is there was more de demand for that kind of lifestyle where people wanted to live closer to where they worked. You're working longer hours. It's easier to stay in the office till 6, 6.30, 7, 7.30, pop out, go get drink, drinks or dinner, 
shower, change, and then go out for the night. I right? believe and gas we prices were, weren't gas prices really high around that same time? I think that was one of the drivers of this like urban renewal thing where, you know, everybody was driving these big giant cars, you know, it was taking an hour to get out to the suburbs and, you know, you're in a car an hour a day and, and people, millennials, younger millennials grew up with that kind of, you know, that in the suburbs and they were sick of it because they were bored. All there was to do was shop. So they wanted to come back to the cities and I think, you know, maybe you were hitting on one of those trends and it was just gas prices were un unrealistic and people were like, let's move back into the cities. I think another thing too was that people were visiting friends. People were working away from their, you know, their 50 mile radius of their house. They were working in, if you're from Cleveland, you're working in Indianapolis or you're working in Chicago and people are visiting their friends and they see that, oh my God, living downtown here was vibrant, is awesome. So then you go back and you get in with, you know, if you're a real estate investor of some sort or a developer, you're like, well, if it works there, why can't it work here? All the jobs are still down here. They're like corporate jobs are still at Procter and Gamble. Mm -hmm. You're still got to go to fifth third. Why wouldn't we, why not take, you know, OTR, which is where all the real estate prices are depressed. It used to be as, you know, gorgeous German village. Let's, let's make it. And it's back in the, a vibrant place with the, you know, the, entrepreneurs who have their one restaurant that you can't find anywhere else in the country and get a good food scene and get a good art scene. And well, also think, Procter so, and Gamble was losing. I, I think at the same time, John, you might know this too, because you know, Procter and Gamble and Kroger and a lot of these companies that are, that are in these urban cores, uh, were losing people to the startup scene because the startup scene was really hot around that time too. And a lot of these startups, they could be anywhere. I know there's a lot of startups now in the, in the city, but um, you know, you had companies in the burbs where you could just go in there, you could park. They had a parking lot. You didn't have to pay to park to go to work. You know, there was out in the burbs, you, you, you know, a lot of people were living out in the burbs at the time. And, you know, the city companies, these big companies were losing some of their best talent to not just the suburb companies, the little fast growing small companies, but they were also losing people to places like New York, Chicago, San Francisco, LA, that had vibrant downtown scenes, Boston, where cities like ours, where we've lived our whole lives. I grew up in downtown Cincinnati practically, and I've always lived in the urban core. And it was a, a ghost town a lot of times. If it wasn't a Reds or a Bengals game going on, or, I mean, you're in Cleveland. I mean, you know. Uh, you could see downtown Cincinnati from the house I grew up in. Yeah. And we never went to downtown. You just never unless went. It, unless the Reds were playing. I didn't even go to Bengals game. So unless the Reds were playing – or there was something at the Coliseum when my dad was working that we wanted to go to, like the the Arena Football Rockers or WWF or back then WWE now, whatever. We didn't go. There was nothing in downtown to draw you there. Yeah, and I didn't leave downtown. Like I was Price Hill downtown. There's only two places I ever went, you know. And well, when I didn't I want to be around people like you. Yeah, exactly. You didn't want to be around me back then or my people. Like <laughs> we had you probably stole your car stereo at one point. <laughs> but there was, you know. Uh, the, these companies said, hey, look, we've got to do something, which is why 3CDC was formed. And John, you may know a little something about 3CDC, but they essentially monopolized development downtown Cincinnati because they have the master plan, right? Like they, they're they the owners of the master plan. But there's been a lot of out-of-town investors come in, fix up, you know, Tafts, that old church. I think they put like $9 million into renovating that and turning it into a bar well, restaurant. He's in, he's in competition with it right now because you've made Cincinnati like your your base, your market. Even you, your wife's from the area, isn't she? Yeah, my wife's from here. So, and that was part of the reason we, we moved to this location uh, with me being from Cleveland and, you know, her being from here. While we were in Chicago, when we started having our kids, this became a conversation to say, hey, look, do we want to move home? Do we want to get closer to family? And again, this is going back to those macro trends. I think you're seeing a lot of that take place where now you, you had people who 15 years ago were flocking to downtown you're now starting to see more people who are going back to the suburbs. And it's, it's not, you know, people will try to make it because it's COVID and all these other things it, that has something to do with it. But I think it's, it's the natural progression. You know, when you are single and you want to run around and do that, you live where, where you want to live. When you have kids, you're not looking at school districts. You're not looking at, you know, yards and space and things like that. And it just changes the dynamic. And as these older millennials are now having children, 
they want to move to places that are more affordable where they have more more uh, yard and it's less about going to the nightclubs or the great restaurants and all those things and what they're trying to find are places where they're not sacrificing everything and a lot of the suburban cities they now recognize that so they're building up great restaurants they're building up great nightlife they're building up the scene so it's not the sacrifice that a lot of these these uh, millennial parents um, were were thinking they were going to have to sacrifice. It's not that these people want to be soccer moms now. They want to still go out and have a good time and have great meals, but they need the other things. And I, I think that's part of what you're seeing now is there's a flight kind of back to the suburbs simply because you now have more people who are having children. Millennials have children later in life. So, you know, if you go back, it used to be in the late 20s. Now it's in the early 30s. So as they're having children and those children are becoming school age, just like ours, you know, we made a decision to say, hey, when my oldest son is ready for kindergarten, we need to be wherever we're going to be because I didn't want to move into different school districts just because I decided now I want to leave. So we moved, you know, about almost two years ago that summer to make sure he was ready for for kindergarten in the fall. And I think you're seeing a lot of that with parents as well. Yeah, I'm going to be interested in seeing uh, the older, the younger gen, Generation X millennials like myself that had kids, you know, earlier and their kids move out. And all of a sudden you're empty nesting at 44, 45 and you want to stay out in the suburbs. The, the apartment, there, there really isn't, because we're running into this in Fort Thomas, there really isn't an option that suits, you know, you're going from some of those houses, northern side of Cincinnati, 3,000 square foot at a decent price. And you, you not not huge yards, but you can keep it up. But do you you don't want to deal with the house anymore? You want to be able to travel and enjoy your time with your wife without you know kids can do whatever they want now. They're taken care of. They're fine. But there isn't like a really good alternative place to live anymore. So people are, well, hold on to their houses, and it makes these suburbs keep expanding out, so that the younger families can get in. I, I'm interested in seeing if like we're trying to do in Fort Thomas. If you can get more urban living inside of the, you know, like Montgomery would be an example of having like a really nice apartment community there for people that are in their 40s and 50s and 60s that they they're holding on to their house because they don't want to leave their community, but they don't. I mean, they but they also are holding on to their house because they don't have the alternative to go somewhere and stay, you know, in downtown or in their little section of their subdivision that they want to be in. So I'm interested in seeing if apartment communities start popping up that are mixed use, mixed use or mixed use for like with, with the businesses or bringing more like services for everybody. Yeah. But I'm saying in terms of like engineered and designed towards someone who's in that transition, like got no kids, but I still want a pimp ass place. I just want to not have to worry about anything and still be where my kids grew up and still be where I, where I've spent the last 15, 20 years investing in the community. You know, a place where I went and John, you mentioned something, the suburbs are trying to become urban now in a way. Um, Carmel, Indiana. Have you been to Carmel, mm -hmm. Indiana? Yep. Absolutely. That, that feels like one of those kind of places. And then what's out in uh it's oh, near Hamilton, Ohio, right? It's right off of the highway where you start headed towards Hamilton. They built that giant like mall that's outside that has apartments in a movie theater, and it feels like a little downtown, like a tiny little downtown. But Carmel, Indiana, I think, did it right. I, that Carmel, Indiana feels good, even though I'm prejudiced against the suburbs. Like, I'm all urban. Like, I'm like 100% come to the city, you know? I don't I don't like um, suburban sprawl, right? I feel like it takes tax dollars and money out of our cities, and then roads crumble, and, you know, you've got problems. And if you don't have a strong urban core, your suburbs are bound to die anyway, so, you know, moving out of the suburbs, I mean, you end up with worse schools in the cities and all this other stuff starts to happen. And when these dollars leave, people don't know what they're doing, though, when they build a brand new subdivision out in the middle of nowhere. They used to be farmland when there's plenty of houses that could be rehabbed, you know, infill or stuff that could just be torn down and you build new developments in the city. But people want the space. They want to. They want a yard. They want to get away. They like what you're saying. Now you've got the suburbs, and they've got money, and they can compete with the cities, and they can kind of have that same feel of being in an urban area where I can go down my little elevator in my apartment complex, and there's restaurants and all kinds of stuff, and it's walkable, and there's parking. Uh, I was just in Buckhead. In, yeah, Buckhead's another example. In Atlanta, yeah, yeah. same thing. 
you know, like you're close to the, you're close to the urban center of Atlanta, but you're far enough away, and they're trying to make their own city. They're trying to get out of having to pay the city taxes for Atlanta. They want their own thing. They think that they can do better, and in some ways they can, which is unfortunate because you know they're making a lot of money being inside that Atlanta metro area, and as a result of being inside that metro that metro area, making a lot of money, there's kind of there's still that little community. You know, you still have to contribute financially to your community for the benefit of being where you're at. Yeah. And they're trying to make it just beneficial for themselves in their little section, which is, I mean, it's their fight. They can have it. Yeah. Yeah. I just believe in cities. Like, I'm a city person, you know. And, John, it sounds like are you uh, are you involved in some of these developments? Is this is this the trend you see? And is this what you're kind of latching onto right now? Well, I mean, we invest in uh, a couple different types of properties, right? So we buy multifamily properties. Um, we kind of locked in on multifamily early on, starting with smaller two to four unit properties. And we kind of scaled into larger 75 plus unit uh, communities. And, you know, we, we see a little bit of everything. Um, I think part of the challenge from an investor developer standpoint is that when you are investing in the urban core, you really do need some assistance from the the city, from the government. And if you are not doing like ground up development, it's harder to get that, you know, I mean, the taxes are a big problem in many cities, uh, whether it's Chicago, Detroit, you know, here in um, Hamilton County, you know, the property taxes can be pretty pricey. So you have to balance some of those things. And the challenge is, and it's almost like in the, um, in the investing world, there's like a, a legacy tax you know, and I think that when you're in those major cities and those the cities where those counties reside, um, there's a pretty substantial tax when it comes to coming in, renovating a property and things like that. If you can't get tax credits or abatements, it can be pretty costly for an investor. So for us, I'd love to invest more in Hamilton County. We would. But when we look at what the taxes are currently and what the taxes would get reassess that based on an acquisition from our standpoint, um, depending on the business plan, it just makes it, I mean, typically it just makes it uh, not an option for us. So we're, we're looking at places where um, there's demand. And for us, it's also not about, we don't see ourselves as a driving where the demand is. You know, we don't do ground up development. I, I think those individuals they focus more on, hey, you know what, we want to develop this area to drive people here or redevelop this community. We do more of light to medium value add, which means essentially we're looking at a property almost like a business. It's making money, it's doing well, but there's an opportunity for it to be a better community. There's an opportunity to improve the units, maybe make some upgrades and modernize it a little bit. Maybe the current owners haven't really done any renovations for the last 20 years. So for us to come in and get it from, you know, 1990 or 2000 and bring it up to present day with, you know, new countertops or new appliances and things like that, that's really the business plan that we're taking into these deals. So for us, it really is a matter of understanding the existing resident base. You know, if we are looking to pivot slightly or make any changes, who are we looking to attract and how do we create a business plan that allows us to be successful? Um, again, we mentioned some of these other developers earlier. They have a completely different model because they're basically going with the, if you build it, they will come approach. We want to make sure people are already there. We just want to make their living place even better than what it is today. Maybe upgrade some of the stuff that's around them. Because if your option is, you know, I mean, I, I, I lived on the west side in Aspen Village, and I don't know if they've upgraded that thing since I lived there 20 years ago. Um, but, you know, one of the things we struggle with in Cincinnati, obviously, and you mentioned, you know, tax incentives and things like that. I mean, you've got, I'm sure you heard the news, like we've had three city council members get in trouble for taking bribes um, in exchange for tax uh, privileges, I guess. And there's a big development right now going on downtown and none of the units are affordable housing. They haven't been designated affordable housing units. Uh, have you ever, I'm, I'm sure you've being, you know, not a necessarily developer, but being a value add guy, how do you feel about the developers coming into like a downtown building, you know, $1,800 to $2,400 a month apartment units and none of those being affordable housing. I mean, from from a, a numbers perspective, you want to maximize your your return on square footage that you're building. But at the same time, when you're talking about building in an urban area, 
you almost have to be a community partner at the same time. So where do you stand on that? And how do you, how do you, uh, you know, how do you talk to people who are developers who may be considering a project like that? Well, I mean, I, I think the real issue we're kind of dancing around is gentrification, right? And the thing that people don't understand about gentrification, the thing that most people don't understand is it's less about who is moving into a neighborhood or a community and more about what happens to the people who already lived in that community and are they being displaced? You know, what's going to happen to them? Because I think that's the biggest challenge. And then the other thing is it's almost like a predatory approach where if you have folks who are maybe uneducated about the market dynamics, what's taking place in a neighborhood, they've lived there for, you know, two generations. Maybe the house has been paid off for 30 years, 40 years, someone's grandparents' house or something like that. And they inherit it. You get an investor that comes by, he wants to buy it cash right away. And there's way more equity than, um, than, than they know is actually in the home. I think that's where we have a mm. challenge, right? Because now you're taking this equity that a family should be able to realize from, from having that home for so long, but maybe they just don't know where property values are, or this person's going to come in, buy it for maybe $150,000, put 25 K into it and sell it for $300,000. Right? So I, I think the challenge is really about what happens to the people who are already in that community and are they being displaced? To your point on having the city involved, what I would love to see more of is making sure that these individuals have a say in how their neighborhood and their community develops going forward. Uh, it shouldn't be a situation where because you've got a bigger paycheck or you have a you know bigger checkbook, you can come in and now completely redefine it. These people wake up one day and their community, their home, their neighborhood is nothing like uh, it was previously. There's some neighborhoods in Chicago that I think have done a better job than others where they've retained the essence of the community um, while still having, you know, newer developments, newer homes, but they without displacing the current residents. And it's a fine balance and it's tough. And I'm not sure I believe in the whole keep some units affordable because I don't know if that solves the problem. You know, it basically just says a handful of folks can live in this place because it's affordable. But again, what happens to the rest of the people? And if I live next door, am I going to get priced out? You know, I, I think there's a lot of questions and issues there. And to me, it's not about it's not about it being affordable. That's certainly an, an issue. I think for me, it's more about if you've lived in a community and this is your home, like you shouldn't be forced out. Um, and I think there should be some options, whether it's that home specifically or that apartment specifically, or if there's a way to make sure that this person isn't shipped, you know, um, to a completely different place. So, and there's a balance there. And I don't, I don't know how you manage that without, you know, I'm not in politics, so I don't know. I mean, I'm a, I'm an investor. So for me, we actually don't use that as a business plan. We, we don't kind of come in and try to displace people. We really focus on buying in, in communities where we can upgrade for that community. So we typically buy assets where the household income is a little higher, maybe the 50, 60, $70,000 range. And we know from our research that if we were to create certain amenities or certain upgrades, they would be willing to pay a premium for that. So for instance, look at Wi-Fi right now. Everyone is big on Wi-Fi because most of us are using it from a technology standpoint. Well, that's something that is a great update. So if we can come into an apartment community and we can add internet and create that where it's a service that we provide, that's a great way to add value to the resident, increase our bottom line. So we're making more money now and it's a win-win because they were going to pay Comcast or whoever else anyway, right? They're going to pay TNT or someone else anyway for, for internet, why not have them pay us? And that's a great way to make money without necessarily taking more money out of their paycheck. And if you can find those solutions, I think that's the best way as investors where we can make the money that we're looking to make return investors for, you know, the investors that we work with while not necessarily jacking up rents on current residents. That makes a lot of sense. What are some of the communities? I, I love the, I love the Wi-Fi thing because you got, you know, do they charge you for each unit? Comcast yeah, or 18th or whoever? So it, it can happen a couple of different ways. Um, so depending on the community, you can get nothing at all. And they just come in and Comcast or AT&T, they, you know, they just, the resident calls them, signs up, they come in and, and they get their internet. As an apartment owner, you actually control who has access. So if we wanted to, we could say, no, you're not allowed. We're not going to allow 
AT&T or Time Warner or whoever else to, to come here, right? You actually have the ability to say that. So if you wanted to, you could negotiate with them and say, hey, I want a cut of the revenue in order to allow you onto my apartment community. So as a single family homeowner, again, it's your house. You decide you want cable. That's between you and the cable company. As an apartment owner, I own that building. Right. So even though the resident wants internet or, or cable, I still have to approve and grant access to my property to allow them to get that, right? So you can cut a deal with the the um, companies. What's happened you know, over the last few years is people are realizing that, you know what, for the internet in particular, we no longer have to be the middleman that just kind of grants them access. There's actually technology out that allows us to control the access and we control it completely. And now we can be the ones that are issuing internet to the resident and we can have that ready for them the moment they move in, as opposed to you move in, you got to wait around all day for, for them to come and set it up and run new wires. So again, that's just one of the amenities, but it's one of the ways that we're trying to reinvent and reimagine how we add value for residents while also increasing our bottom line. When you said something earlier about where you started, and I just want to let people know, you know, when you're starting out, a lot of times it's good to purchase something like a, a, uh, a four family because anything five units and above is considered commercial. So you, your interest rate's going to be higher. You're going to have a bigger down payment, things like that. But if you can find yourself a four family, which good luck in Cincinnati right now, trying to find a four family, I've been on the hunt for those things. And it's like, as soon as they're on the market, they're gone, right? They've got five offers on them, but four families are generally pretty good when it comes to starting out or, uh, you know, a two family where you live in the smaller unit maybe and rent out the bigger unit and it, it pays for your mortgage. But it sounds like that's how you started out. So explain that a little bit and then how you transitioned into multifamily, into Absolutely. larger multifamily. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly how we started out, right? We started with a two unit building and there's a term, if you're on bigger pockets, you may have heard it, but it's a term called house hack and essentially lived in one unit. We rented out the other unit and we went and did some, some modest renovations to our unit was able to increase the rent, increase rents throughout and increase the value of the property. So we had enough funds to refinance. We used those funds to, to buy another property. So we had uh, already bought a three unit property, bought an eight unit property. And that put us in a position to really, <coughs> Bless <you>. sorry. Oh, <laughs> cool. Thank you. That put us in a position to really grow our portfolio. And the strategy, as you mentioned, that two to four unit space, it's residential. So it qualifies for residential financing. And the great thing about that, and part of the reason you guys are having a hard time finding four units right now is because it qualifies for residential financing, you can go out, buy a four unit property, you can get FHA financing on it, which is as little as 3.5% interest or uh, down. down. Mm -hmm. So I could go out and buy a $200,000 home and only put $7,000 down. Now, if you're currently renting and you can go out and buy a $200,000 property for just $7,000 with, by the way, two or three other residents paying your rent or paying your mortgage, you can see how this is a great strategy to start to create cash flow and create wealth because not only are you creating income, but you're also decreasing your expenses. And this is something that really allowed us to grow quickly because I went from paying $1,500 in rent to we bought this, this two unit. Um, I think the mortgage starting out was like 2,300 or something like that. Um, but we got a $1,400 check from the first floor units. We had about $900 that we had to cover, but keep in mind, now we're paying down the, um, the mortgage. So we have some equity pay down there. Um, uh, we made renovations. So we had already increased the equity and the value of the property through the renovations. And by the way, over time, we were able to get more money in rent. So when we refinanced, we were able to pull out equity and we still had someone else who was paying the mortgage. And by the way, when we refinanced, now, because the the amount of money that we owed was less and interest rates had come down, um, we ended up going from paying twenty three hundred bucks to like eighteen hundred bucks a month. So now that resident, when we got that rent around fifteen hundred dollars, now we're only paying like three hundred bucks, you know, out of our pocket. So you can see how going from paying fifteen hundred dollars in rent to three hundred dollars uh, with all of that money basically going, you know, towards uh, the debt pay down we were able to create more wealth and equity there. And you use that to, to scale up. So the key is to get a four unit because 
that's the most amount of units that you could use this strategy. So if you see a four unit, those individuals are probably able to pay a higher amount because if they're only putting three and a half percent down, their return on capital is going to be much greater than an investor who's putting 20 or 25 percent down. So for them, yes, I'm willing to pay a premium because what I'm going to make on this deal based on what I invest is going to be much higher than a person who had to bring 25% of the down payment. Well, and you know, it's the opportunity cost of money, right? You could take, I mean, for example, there's a place over on the West side right now. It's four, one bedroom units, right? One building. It's $200,000. Again, you'd be putting $7,000 down. If I'm a, you're a married couple, right? You get your tax return. Say your tax return is $7,000. What are you going to do with that $7,000? Are you going to go out and, you know, get new stuff for your car? Are you going to go out and get depreciating assets? Or are you going to take that $7,000, purchase a four family, rent it out? I mean, you could even move into one of those units. For the FHA, you think you have to live in it for a year. You have to live in it if it's FHA. So $7,000, you're living in one of the one-bedroom units, right? If you're just a married couple, no big deal, right? Yeah, for a year. But you're getting, say, 700 a month for each one of those other units. So now your income is 2100 And I did the rent calcu- the mortgage calculation on that. It's like $750. So you're, I mean, you're doing all right. You know, I mean, you're, you're making $1,400, $1,400 a month, and you're living for free on that $7,000 tax return you could have got, right? Yep. But instead, it's an people, amazing strategy. It is. It is. And it's, 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 it's almost a no brainer. And you're investing in a hard asset that has a value, right? That's not going to necessarily decrease in value, although I think things are a little rich right now. And, you know, things could come back a little bit, but generally the market continues to go up over time. Well, you need to find these properties too. And, that, and that's the that's problem the rough people, part. Are, people are running into right now. And so, John, can you talk uh, to our listeners about the relationships you've built? be able to find properties prior to other prior to them being listed on the MLS and then get into basically a bidding war with other investors. Yeah. And I think part of it too, is understanding like how markets change. I mean, I bought my first property in 2012 and I mean, I, I basically, me and my agent, we looked at MLS, we made a laundry list of properties we liked. And uh, at some point I started to see those properties fly off. And I was like, wait a minute, now it's been two days and three of the properties on my list have gone under contract. The next day, another property went under contract. The next week, another four. So we'd add more properties, more would come off the list. And that showed us, hey, you know what? The market's heating up. We're gonna have to make a decision very quickly. So we did. We found a property that we liked. We acquired that and that was great. Now you fast forward two years later and we're ready to go do the same thing. Well, guess what? Properties are moving way quicker than that. You know, I didn't have the chance to even make a list because the properties I was looking at didn't even meet the criteria. So the mm. first thing I had to do was change my criteria because there were there were no properties in the neighborhood I was looking at. So I had to change neighborhoods. Um, and then I the first deal or second deal we got there, we got it off market. We got it from our agent. And what happened was she actually had another client who was looking to sell some properties that he is, he was finishing rehabbing. And uh, she was talking to him and said, you know what, John, I think this property fits your criteria. I think this is one that you might, you might like. And I said, great. We'd love to see it. I went over and saw it. She was a hundred percent spot on. Um, I said, what does he want for it? And she said, well, I'm going to list it for this, but if we do it off market, he may be willing to take this. Let me ask him to find out. Um, she came back. We spent maybe an hour going back and forth over email of the numbers, got under contract that Sunday and uh, we did a great deal. We made a lot of money on that deal. So very pleased there. So I think when you're talking about how to find deals, there are lots of different ways, but I'll give you the top three. First of all, and this is for part time people, right? If you're, you've got a full time job, you're doing something else. You can't beat the guy who is sitting at his computer every day trying to do everything he can to find an off market deal. So if you have a full time job and you're looking for a two to four unit apartment, apartment building, one thing you want to do is you want to uh, still use the MLS and work with an agent. Okay. Um, the reason for that is you can set up your alerts. If the clearer you are on your criteria, the easier it's going to be for you to see the deal, know it's a deal and pull the trigger. What happens to most people is 
you haven't really sat down and specified the details of what you will accept and what you won't accept. So you're looking at everything that comes across your desk and you spend a lot of time evaluating that. And then you realize that there's something you just don't like. When in reality, if you would have set your criteria up front, you can look at that deal or that opportunity and know immediately, hey, this is worth investigating or it's not. So the first thing is you have to get clear on what a deal is so you can eliminate the ones that don't fit. The second thing there is you need to be able to work directly with your agent to feed you deals and make sure that they know your criteria so that when an opportunity comes, you all both are on lockstep hey, we got one, let's move forward. Let's either see it tonight or right away, or let's start drafting the offer so we can go ahead and get it in. Now, if you are more sophisticated, maybe you want to come with your own marketing campaign. Uh, One of the ways you can find deals is, you know, you can connect and network with other investors. There are certainly different groups and organizations, meetups, things like that, where you can connect with other investors and just build relationships, talk to people, find out what they're working on, find out what they own, find out if they would be willing to sell. Um, Building those relationships is a great way to grow your business. Uh, But then the third thing is direct message or direct mail, Uh, reaching out directly to these owners. And you can go on different websites and pull a list of all the properties that fit your criteria, but you can send them uh, emails, you can send them, you know, hard mail or direct mail, You can cold call them, you can do a text campaign, uh, but you can find a way to get directly in touch with the owner. Now, admittedly, that last route requires a lot more work, Uh, but if you wanna get the best deals, then you're gonna have to go directly to the owner and find the problems to solve. And I think that's the key. You know, a lot of times people get caught up in the numbers and the prices and all of that. If you really wanna get a good deal, you have to solve a problem. And the purchase price, is usually reflected on, you know, maybe what someone feels they need to get compensated, but maybe you can figure out if there's a different problem. What's the real reason this person is selling? What do they plan on doing with the money? And if you can get creative on solving that problem for that person, maybe you can negotiate a deal that works a little bit better for you where price isn't the determining factor. Mm, Those are some really good points. Yeah, we ran into an issue with that. We had a guy that um, we were looking at six it was a portfolio. It was six different units spread out through, I guess, 12 doors spread throughout the city. And, um, we were discussing that. We're like, I mean, you're, you're pretty high. You'll probably get it, but you know, we've had a long-term relationship here. Why, why won't you work with us? And it was, well, I'm going to retire to Key West. I need to have this much money to go to Key West. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, help me retire. I said, well, do you own the building? Can we just, you know, it won't, it won't be a taxable event if we own or if you own or finance it said, well, I've kind of used this as my piggy bank. I've refinanced this thing like four times. So I still have a pretty hefty mortgage on this whole portfolio. Really, you know, I guess that eliminates us from getting these. Yeah. You already properties. took your money out. You should have used this, invested in something else. But yeah. So, um, I know one thing people always overlook when they get into this business is how expensive maintenance is and where are they going to find qualified people? We had a uh, Cecil Hogan on here, a buddy of mine, who started a company with uh, our friend Lamar and Lamar Harris, and they uh, they have a company called Renozi. And what they're trying to do is they created the app. It's available in the App Store and Google Play Store. But essentially, uh, if you're a, a homeowner or really an investor is who they're targeting, and you're trying to do a flip or whatever, you get on their app and you say, hey, I need a guy to come out here and do this. You take a video of whatever the problem is, and they send somebody out to you. Um, it may not be that easy a lot of times. And uh, I'm lucky enough to have people in my family and be from a part of town where you got a lot of blue collar people. Um, but they're not always available. And what do you guys do? Like, how did you build relationships with, uh, with contractors or are you handy yourself or how did that work for you? I'm definitely not handy. Uh, my wife will attest to that. So, uh, (laughs) definitely not me doing the work. Um, I, I'm the YouTube king whenever it comes to trying to be handy and, uh, and I have to do it whenever she's not in the house. Cause if she's in the house and she sees me watching a YouTube video, I'm going to hear it. So no, that is definitely not the solution. Um, but it takes work and that's one of the challenges of this business. And I will tell you too, I come from corporate America. So anyone who comes from corporate America and you come with that corporate America thinking that you're going to have a meeting, you're going to tell someone what you want to see happen 
You're going to walk away from that meeting. That person's going to nod their head. They got it. Okay, cool, cool. <laughs> and you leave. You expect, you know, what you discussed in the meeting to happen. Well, that's not what happens. Okay. And it's just not how this works. And uh, I've seen it too many times. And it's funny. I had a conversation with a, uh, a uh, contractor on my podcast, Target Market Insights. And he said to me, he said, John, you're never going to find that great contractor because the prices you pay um, the margins are too slim for the good guys who are really good. Why would I, as a good contractor, do your job where you want me to do this kitchen remodel for $4,500 and I'm going to make, you know, 10% of that maybe. So I'm going to make 450 bucks when I can go do a nice luxury home, do a kitchen remodel for $30,000 and, and make 10% of, of that project. And that person is going to be happy and satisfied. You're going to be on me all day because every day that we don't finish is a day of profits <laughs> yes, you don't get. Yes. So True. Like, why, if I were a good contractor with the business, why would I ever do your job? Why would I settle to work with you when I can go and get this retail? Or we just talked about the developments in these cities. Why not go work for a big developer and do some of these commercial projects? He's like, so you're not going to get the best contractors because the best contractors would never work with real estate investors. And I was like, damn, that makes sense. Well, that's, um, that's why, so, I, that's why I've always had everything I've ever done. A general contractor has been my partner. I that's, uh, that's, I brought him in 50, 50 on, or the one this, we just bought this building down here in Madison for 2 million. And, um, our general contractor, we, he's in for, I think all he had to do is put 10% down and he gets a one fifth share of he's splitting with the with the architect and both those guys only had to put 10,000 down and then, you know, whatever they work up to what it was like $225,000 a piece or something like that. So once their work gets to $225,000, then they've, then they're pretty much locked in their share and then they can start taking any profits that we get. But that's basically what we had to do because like you said, if you do anything, especially if you have a small commercial project, you learn it, you learn this really fast. Small commercial projects are like the last thing that anybody will ever touch. Well, yeah. I you mean, jump I, through so many hoops. You got to jump through you, things you don't have to jump through for residential. You have to jump through for particularly plumbing, HVAC. It's all different. And so why have the hassle of having an inspector come and tell you, oh, this is off by a, a diameter, a, a centimeter. You got to fix it. Well, not only that, I mean, you mentioned it, John. I mean, I could go to a new development and essentially put in the exact same kitchen 40 times, you know, and I, instead of going from one house and it's in the same location, like I show up to the same place every day, do two kitchens or whatever, you know, I don't know if it's going to take that. It's not, it isn't going to be that quick, but every day I'm using the same materials. You know, I do one or two. Now I got it down, you know, and I get run through 40 kitchens, get paid, you know, three grand off of each kitchen I install and I'm, I, you know, I don't have to go anywhere else. I mean, that makes sense to me, you know? And, and I think another thing people underestimate too, when they get into this business is I used to have these like altruistic values. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to help people. I'm going to, I'm going to rent to people and they're going to be Here nice to my go. properties. Buckle and I'm going to, and, and a majority of my stuff has been section eight because I'm from Price Hill and, um, it's just no normal people want to live in Price Hill. Right. But it's a neighborhood I know. And it's like, you know, that's where I started buying property because I'm like, oh man, the street used to be really nice when I was a kid or whatever. I'm going to buy on that street. And then like five years later, it's a freaking mess, you know, because people underestimate how much destruction a tenant will put on your property. And you might as well, I mean, you've got to, it's, it, you've got to make enough money to make up for the fact that this person might leave in a year and leave you with four or $5,000 worth of damage to your small little two-bedroom apartment or condo or whatever that is you've got. And some people will move in. I know at least, you know, and you've got better quality tenants than I've had in the past, but some people play this game where they'll give you the deposit and they'll give you the first month's rent and then they'll start having problems, right? And they'll have these sob stories where, oh, well, I got, I'll get you it, I'll get you it. And you don't want to kick them out because you're like, man, it took two, three months to find this person, you know, four months to find this person. So you might let them slide that one month. And then you finally, you give them that three day notice. And then you got to give them, you know, and then it, it could be three, four months and they're staying in your place for free, but they just do that to a whole bunch of landlords and they just keep. You self-manage, don't you? Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. I Why? Knew, yeah, yeah. I knew that. There's it's, a, there's I'm a, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you the issue with that. See, here's the deal. 
when you self-manage, you set yourself up for those sob stories, right? Mm-hmm. And what I've learned is I'm I'm very compassionate as well. And that's why I don't invest in the neighborhoods like you're talking about, because I care. And I've I've understand the people. I, I've been I've been around those people. I grew up around those people. So for me, I know that we got to separate this and it's got to be business. So I need a I need a manager, a property manager that understands the business side and can run it that way. And you got to do more work up front, right? Because on the screening process, a lot of those things that you called out are, are red flags that we can identify in the screening process, you know, job stability, um, you know, looking at uh, credit score and things that may get, you know, you may lax a little bit and let someone slide through and oh, okay, well, they got a great story, whatever, or they got cash, right? They came with, with $3,000 cash day one. And those residents, typically become a challenge because they're kind of overcompensating, right? And you have to watch for the red flags. You have to have your criteria. And just like any other business, you have to get clear on who you're going to do business with. Um, And this is a business. Make no mistake about it. Providing housing is a business. And everyone, I believe everyone should have somewhere to sleep. That doesn't mean that, you know, that person, if you don't qualify, you get to stay at, at this apartment. You know, there's plenty of other housing options that are out there. And I hope that there's more affordable options. Uh, But on the same note, you don't want to take on those challenges for yourself and your own business, because there's some people who, who really rely on this. There's a story. I don't know if you saw this. There's a, uh, a gentleman who they had their property 30 years paid off completely. The eviction moratorium kicks in. He had a resident that hasn't paid him in, um, I want to say like 14 or 15 months. And he had to sell the property, um, with the residents still in there and he took a major loss on it because he just couldn't afford to, to pay the mortgage without any income coming in. I mean, this, you will get taken advantage of if you are not kind of firm in the way you approach your business. And I would say too, part of the reason we invest in neighborhoods we do is because we don't, we don't want to get into that. Like we, we want to provide a real service for people and we feel like, if, if they're not in a position or if they're struggling to pay their, their rent or come to their finances, that's not the business that we personally like to be in. Those people need help, but that's, we don't want to be the, the part of that pain or that problem. You know, we want to provide housing where, you know, we can help people and provide quality housing, but we don't want to get into social work. Um, and that's just our model. Like we just, you know, we, we've, I've, I've been on both sides of that. I completely understand it. Um, but I also know for us, that's a weak spot where I would want to help. And I, and I think that there are ways to help people without sacrificing or completely derailing your own personal finances or your own business. And uh, it just takes a little bit more effort. And we do that too. I mean, the, the residents we do have that are on programs, we try to work heavily with them, but within the rules and confines of uh, what's allowed. So uh, even with, with the moratorium, We've worked with a lot of them to understand like, hey, here are the different grants, the different programs that are available. Go and apply for these. You know, if you need help, let's get that help. Or worst case, if you can't pay pay your rent, then let's talk about a solution that works for everybody. Because I don't want you here and let's not do the sob story thing every month. If you need to get out of your lease, let's just talk through it. And I won't fine you or anything like that. If you need to go to a place where you're, you're going to save 100 bucks a month on your rent, then let's, why don't you go look and we'll just release you out of your lease. But- you know, I'm happy to find that solution. I just don't want to be in a position where now we've got this friction where, you know, I'm fighting you each month and you've got this story and, and now this becomes this, this bigger thing when that's not really the goal of what we're trying to provide. But yeah, but you wouldn't have, you're the you, bad guy though. But you wouldn't have, you, you know, wouldn't, you wouldn't have the stories. See, that's the thing is that Adam's got to have this, Adam is going to be a multi, multi, multi-millionaire. And he's still going to buy those houses because he loves having those stories. And I love listening to this. Dude, stories. I got so many, bro. I got <laughs> Just all to crackhead stories. Like listen, you listen to a couple podcasts. Oh you'll, you'll, man, you'll all. it's all bad. But anyway, yeah. But you know, I, I feel like you know, as an affordable housing landlord, and I, I really got into it because well, let's the, be, let's, you got to be. John doesn't know you got to be fair about this too. You're a affordable housing advocate. I mean, it, and you've like he was. 44 signatures shine of uh, being a candidate for mayor of Cincinnati on this, this next. Well, I'm uh, still fighting it. We got a Tuesday. I get to go have my hearing. I'm protesting it, but he meet, he's, he's one of the side projects he's got going on is um, digitizing uh, real estate so that he can work with affordable housing providers and make it uh, cost efficient for people to invest in 
basically their own neighborhood so that they can build equity on their own. Well, so I like, mean, I've been kicked out of, we, yeah. we moved about 16 times in my life. Cause we were, you know, my mom was on unemployment half the time. She worked mm -hmm. at the IRS, but it was seasonal. So we'd get kicked out because we couldn't pay the rent. We'd go live with my grandma in a little one bedroom. Then we'd get up enough money so that we could put a deposit on another place. And then, you know, we'd be there for a couple of years, maybe get kicked out. So we'd bounce around a lot. And, um, you know, I feel like people have gotten, there's more programs now than there were when we were kids a lot more programs, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, a majority of my tenants have been on Section 8, which this whole situation with the government, with, you know, the moratoriums on the rent and everything else hasn't affected me at all because the government's paying me, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have a ton of units. I used to at one point, but I had to scale it back. And I've had foreclosures and things like that, mostly because people, you know, I had one guy take a golf club to my entire unit when he didn't pay rent. And I was doing them a favor because one of my neighbors her daughter was dating this guy and they were going to move out on their own. They needed a place. I had an open unit and I had to kick him out the first month. They didn't pay the rent. And he just took a golf club to the whole place, the windows, the appliances, oh. everything, you name it. And of course, oh. you know, I didn't get as much money from uh, the, the insurance as insurance, you yeah. would. So yeah, I ended up having to foreclose on that place. But, you know, I, I believe in affordable housing, but I don't believe in these delusional affordable housing advocates. There are some people out there where you're the bad guy. No matter, it doesn't matter what you say, if you're a landlord, you're evil. And I don't, I don't get it. And I, it, most of them are kids from the suburbs that grew up and both <laughs> parents were there. And here I am, I, I grew up in this shit. You know what I'm saying? Like I grew up with people who've had these problems and these people are trying to tell me that I'm the bad guy now. You know what I'm saying? Like you grew up in a happy cul-de-sac some damn where with both parents, probably never had a problem in your life. Now, all of a sudden, you're an advocate, you know? It's like coffee shop advocate. I, I, can't, I can't stand them, but you're a landlord, so you're a bad guy. I, you've had to have dealt with it. Like, you've had to have had somebody, some weirdo that wants you to essentially not make any money. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think part of it, too, is like you have to figure out what you can stomach, you know, and, and what what your energy is that you can attest, right? And I think you clearly are, you like this, you, you love it. You're an advocate. You're okay with that friction. I've learned, like, you got to understand yourself. I'm a fighter, but I don't like confrontation like that. You oh, know, I'm a, no. I'm a, I'm a zero to a hundred person when it comes to confrontation. Oh, you and me both. Man. I'm, Ooh. I'm, but, but I'm <laughs> super chill. I am super chill. So if I get worked up, I don't, I don't, I can't turn it off. Right. Right. So I, per, I like, there's, there's like memes, right. Where if you see like a, a guy with his girl and like his order is wrong and the white, you know, the girl is the one who like, uh, like complains and like, go tells the waiter, Hey, you messed up his sandwich or whatever. Like that's me and my wife. Like I, <laughs> my, my food comes out wrong. I look at her like, Oh man. And she's like, excuse me, excuse me. Hey. And uh, you know, she'll fix it. Cause I'm you not, know not, where I'm you're going to take it. You're afraid what? to take it there. It's, like, well, it's, it's not that serious for me. Yeah. So 99% of it is cool because I'm not, go it's, it's cool. Like I'm just not going to take it there. So when it comes to those kind of things though, on the matters where it is serious and people are really assassinating your character, whether it's in person online. I mean, I just got into last week on Twitter with someone um, about this thing and it's like, and I'm not a Twitter beef guy. And I was like, wow, but it was the same thing. They were like, you're a landlord, you're the scum. You guys are the spawn of Satan. I'm like, you have no idea what I do and how I work with people yet alone. And I was actually defending the resident because I felt like she was wrong in the, the statement, uh, but it didn't matter. They, they saw it and like, they just ripped me to shreds. I'm like, you know, this is why I don't do Twitter. Don't they don't the worst. They, Well, they have no idea because they've never had to put they themselves, they, 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 they've they never put themselves out. Yeah. But you have to understand that there's an environment of people who have been so entitled that if you have anything they just want to fight and they don't care about the story that you just shared, which I think is amazing, by the way, for someone to grow up on these kind of programs and assistance and, and pivot. And that's kind of a thing for me too. And it's, I had a conversation with a guy and I didn't realize it, but I think part of the reason I got into real estate also stems from my childhood where I recall like we were renters my entire life. Mm. And I recall my mom doing everything she can to scrape, you know, money together, borrowing from my dad, my uncles, like her sisters, um, anyone she could so that when that guy in a blue truck came, she could hand him cash. Mm. And I remember that. And uh, I just remember like, damn, what is like, how does this work where she 
will, you know, do anything she can to go find the the money to give it to this guy. Like, how do I be that guy? Yeah. You know, how do I be on the other That's, side of yep. this if people are working this hard to pay? And it wasn't like a vulture type thing. And I, I think that people just misunderstand it. And for me, it was just recognizing the dynamic and recognizing, that, hey, you know what? I don't want to be in a situation where we're scrambling and fighting like that. But on the same note, as I dug deeper and learned more about ways to create wealth, ways to create income. And it wasn't the job. The job is one thing. You don't get wealth through the job. You get wealth through the investments, what you do with that money, how you live your lifestyle. So as I learned more about that, real estate became the key. And it took me back to those moments as a child and a young teen watching my mom, you know? And, and I think for me, if I never saw that, maybe I wouldn't have gotten to real estate. If I was a suburb kid, maybe I never would have done it. But to see it and understand the power of it, um, I think, at least from from my viewpoint, I think it did have an impact to say, you know what, I want to be on the other side of this power dynamic. I like to see things turn 180. Um, as a kid, my dad worked at a Buick dealership and uh, Quay Buick in Cleveland. And uh, he worked there for 15 years. And on Saturdays, I would go down there with him. He'd wash his cars. And it was a, it was a fun experience for me as a kid. Fast forward, and I was working at General Motors, and I was working on the Buick team at the Renaissance Center in headquarters, overseeing, you know, a hundred million dollar advertising budget. I love it, and uh, it was just, it was remarkable. And I thought about it one day, and I called my dad, and uh, we just had a little moment talking about it. And it's about, you know, that that story, that American success story, the the dreams, the possibilities, what could be, and. People who aren't wired to pursue those dreams and to take advantage of the opportunities they do have, because people like to focus and point the blame on others and say, oh, I didn't have this and you have that. And that's why. No, it's because you didn't lock in. I went to a state school. You know, I was on free lunch. Love free lunch. And I bust my ass to get to where we were. Right. And and the story is not a unique story. Again, I bought real estate. I bought it in a way that I just laid out starting out. And we got to the point where we started to work with other people. We've invested in over $90 million worth of real estate up to this point Wow! with our partners. And for us, we recognize how hard it was for us to get there. So we actually work with other people so they don't have to do all that legwork now. Instead, they can partner with us, get into some of these deals as a passive investor and make money. So when people fight it, if you're fighting it just because you holistically don't agree with it. I can at least respect that. But if you are just sad because you're working your day job and you just think it's unfair or you don't think it's real work, part, part of these people just think that we collect the rent checks and it just goes straight into our bank account in our pockets. Oh, you're, yeah, you're in Tahiti some damn way. Like, yeah, that's yeah. where, you know, you're just living it up, drinking margaritas all damn day. That's what you're doing. No, that's yeah, and I think bank. too, part of it, part that's of the issue at the is bank. You're right. <laughs> you, have, you have some, you have some, and I, I don't like the word landlord. So I'm going to say property owners. You have some property owners that don't respect their residents. And I think that's oh, part yeah. of the issue too, is you get that tension because we can still call my, them the reason, the reason, yeah. yeah, the reason we approach it, like, like again, a business, these are my clients, right? I mean, ultimately, I want to create a great environment for these residents. So they select our apartments. They they they're happy to pay a premium. If not happy, they at least make their decision. They see the value in staying at our homes because they're getting that value. They're getting that customer service. If they're not getting treated right, then, yes, you're going to face all of this issue. But if they feel like they're respected when they have a problem with their apartment, they put a request is handled. They're you know treated with respect and fairness you don't get some of this, this, this vitriol that I think we see, but when they feel like they're mistreated or they're being taken advantage of, um, or quite frankly, they have other issues in their life. You know, maybe their job's not what they're mm. wanted to be and they're getting beat up on a job or they have some personal issues with family or friends or relationship. They need somebody to beat up. And the guy who's asking them to pay their rent every month is an easy person to go after. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's 426 and we told him, he, he told us he had a hard time. Man, I could be talking about this stuff all day. We got overtime from John today. Yeah, we did. I do want to say this. When I joined Joe Fairless's group, so we had Joe Fairless on here. I think he was like the fourth guest we had on. Um, the best ever real estate investing group. It's a Facebook, private Facebook group. John was the first person to call me. He go, He said, what's your phone number? And I gave him my phone number. Within like 35 seconds, he called me and introduced himself and said, you know, you need, you need anything, you let me know. We had a great conversation. That's awesome. 
And so now that when he moves to Cincinnati, we play poker together whenever I can get off my leash and actually <laughs> be able to socialize. Well, John, tell us, uh, you know, if somebody wanted to get in on one of these deals, if they wanted to reach out to you, how do they, how do they find you? How do they find, uh, how do they find your company? Yeah, well, listen, I, th I think the important thing first is educating yourself. You know, we kind of talked at a very high level on how this works. So if you are interested, um, you can go to my website. We have a sample deal package on our website and we have some other content that can help you at least learn more about what it is that we do. So go to kasmancapital.com slash sample deal and you can download that sample deal package and get some more information from us. And I think the biggest thing is this. You know, for us, we are really focused on those people who are trying to create a legacy. Um, part of the reason I, I said I had my stop was my son's bus comes. I was texting with my wife to make sure she could pick him up and I saw her go out. So we were good to go other I'll go, to go over a little bit. And um, I think that's just really important, man. If, if you've got I mean, you all have, you know, um, your responsibilities, family. We, we joke about it. But most of us, if you're trying to do the side hustle thing, it's usually because you see something bigger than yourself. Most of us can can survive and be pretty happy on our day job income. But if you're doing the side hustle, it's because you want to build something else, whether it's for your family, whether it's for your legacy, whether it's for to impact the community. And, and I look at it as the three C's, right? There's uh, there's your immediate family, um, not three C's, but there's the the immediate family. I was going to say that didn't circle. start with C. Not at all. Not. <laughs> uh, but there's there's your family and friends. Then there's your um, community and then there's the causes that you care about. So when you look about, look at what you're trying to create, that's the impact, right? Can you, can you change the lives and impact your family and friends? Then can you impact your community? And then last is if you have causes that you care about, can you impact those causes? And I think that's what we're all trying to strive for to some degree. And those causes may not be the same as mine, right? Your, your causes will be completely different than, than the causes that I'm passionate about. But when I think about the work that we do and, you know, creating that, that side hustle and trying to figure out how do you grow and, and change your life, that's really the mentality. So um, if you are looking for that and looking to do that with passive income while you figure out, you know, where else your passions lie, because real estate does not have to be a passion to make money in real estate, then uh, we should talk more. So go to the website, kasmancapital.com slash sample deal. And I'd be happy to get in touch and talk to you a little bit more. And he's got the number one real uh, multifamily investing podcast. Yes. What is that? Say it again. Yeah. It's called uh, Target Market Insights. It's the multifamily marketing show. Love it. And that's available on pretty much any any yeah, platform pretty much wherever you listen to this is uh you can probably find the show there it's awesome john appreciate your time my man i appreciate it Absolutely. yeah yeah i'm probably gonna go on there and learn a little bit more too myself <laughs> why not have me you can never have enough knowledge all right. That's right thank you guys thank, thank you. you see you john Ooh.